I forget things all the time. It's not that hard. Okay, here, I have a question. Yeah. So, have I ever asked you the question of, do you think it's possible to have a relationship with with someone in front of a group? Wait, what? So, I guess another way to rephrase this question is, is it possible to really get to know somebody in a group setting? You can know how someone acts in a group by, like, in a group setting. You can't only know someone one-on-one because then you don't know how they act in a group setting, but you also can't know someone just in a group setting because then you don't know how they act one-on-one. I see. It's Okay. So, so you think it requires both? Yeah. I don't Okay, here how about this? Can you have a real conversation with someone in front of a camera? Yes. You can. Yeah. But doesn't the knowledge that somebody's watching you make you act differently? Uh, yes, it does. But I think a lot of times, for especially like the right kind of people, they forget that the camera's there. And so the knowledge that someone else is watching is gone. Really? How does one make him, him or herself forget the camera's there? How is it possible to make yourself forget something? Well, you, you just focus on... On forgetting? No, you just focus on what the other person's saying. I mean, I forget things all the time. It's not that hard. Uh, okay. <laughs> all right. So it, it requires you looking towards something else, not just willing to forget. But forgetting actually requires just moving your attention to something else. Uh, yeah, I guess. Um, actually, I wanted to tell you this also. Today in my Philosophy 401 class which is officially titled Comparative Religions, uh, we discussed what the de- definition definition of religion is in the first place. And we did so by looking at the word religion uh, etymologically. I think that's the proper term. Can I guess? Just so we looked at we looked at the roots. Yeah, give me a give me a guess as to what you think the word religion uh, where it stems from. Relationship. Okay, break the word down based on what you know about well, the roots. Relate. Because I, you're relay, relay, relay or relate? Because relay is like relay information. But I, I think you've skipped over the, the roots. Re, is it relit, lig, lig? How do, how do you spell religion? Oh yeah. R e l i g. I don't, I don't know, ligament? I What? That's good. Oh, it is. So it's like, okay. So both the L-I-G in ligament and the L-I-G in religion stem from the Latin verb ligare, meaning to connect. Okay. And so the word religion, when you break it down into re, which means, again, uh, you know, you can redo something that you've done in the past, you do it again. Yeah. So re means again, and then ligion stems from ligare, meaning to connect. So it comes together as to connect again. And I thought it was really interesting because to connect again, when I hear that as the definition of religion, the first question that comes into my mind is, 
why do we need to connect again? Did we lose a connection in the first place? And then I also think, well, what are we connecting to? Because if I'm charging my phone, I connect the outlet to the phone charger, right? Yeah. And um, there's an object toward which this connection is aimed. And so I think you have to answer those two questions is to whom or to what are we connecting and why do we have to do it again? Did we lose something in the first place? Interesting. I didn't know that that's where it came from. Yeah, actually, I had never thought about that before. I'd never actually looked up the word religion before. And that's the other thing is I don't think I've looked up the word religion before because I don't I don't like the word religion. It has such a negative connotation where we live and in the time that we live and if you say you're religious, I don't it strikes me as if someone is also implying that you know you ought to be ostracized for being religious. And I don't know if I'm mistaken in receiving or just thinking that this is what religion means in the first place. Or thinking that this connotation actually comes from the word, but that's that's how the word strikes me when I hear it is, okay, let's shun this act, any religious act we can think of. Did they, did they say that it comes from the word, like, bind again in your class? Yeah, so that my professor was actually the one who said, yeah, the Latin root in this word is ligare, meaning again. But actually, uh, a lot of etymologists, which are people who study the origins of certain words, disagree in saying that ligare is actually the um, proper root word in religion, and they say it's actually legare, L-E-G-A-R-E. Because... Hmm. Which... I mean, if you think about the word, the the root little short section of this word "leg," leg, um, and I, I, you can see "leg" in the word "legible." Um, I think you can de- deduce that "leg," leg ra, actually means to read. So the word "religion." then if it's actually legare instead of ligare actually means to read again rather to, than to connect again. And usually if you reread something, it's because you missed something in the first place or because you didn't completely understand it in the first place. Hmm. So while you were talking, I pulled up um, some paper on the etymology of religion by Sarah F. Hoyt from John Hopkins. And it's just talking about how the word religion, um, that the word religare means to bind, not ligare. Religare means to bind. That's what it says. So it doesn't mean to bind, so it doesn't mean to connect again. No, it just says religare means, well, yeah, it means to join or link. Interesting. So why is it, so is it just both? Religare and ligare? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
I know if it actually means to bind or to connect again, that serves some religions very well. Because if you take Christianity, for instance, and you say religion is some sort of man connecting with the divine again, you would say that man had lost his divine connection or divine relationship in the first place, which serves this religion, Christianity, really well because, you know, we have the doctrine of man's fall uh, in Genesis 1 or Genesis 3, I believe. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder if, like, it's been manipulated or I, I don't know. I think even if it comes from religaray, I mean, it, that's still kind of what it is. You know, we are joined with God. I do, yes, I do think this binding or joining or connecting I, idea has some really profound implications. And the connection actually strikes me as implying a relationship. I don't know if I can logically relate the two right now but between connection and relationship, but I do think we connect with people with whom we have relationships. I think that is essential to relationships is the fact that we can connect with them. Yeah. And I mean, you connect in different types of relationships in different ways, which is kind of what yeah. we're going to talk about. Friendship is one way. And that's kind of a special right. case. Here's a question I have is, so relationships might hinge on connection between people. And if if a relationship with someone is not going as well as we would like, likely it, it's due to the fact that we're not connecting with that person as well as we want to. And here's my question. What is it that, that hinders human connection? What are some things that you think cause humans to not be able to relate or connect with each other as, as well as we would like in, in friendships? I think whenever you don't understand someone, that's when you don't connect with them. What's the best way to understand someone? Well, first you have to understand yourself because you'll understand someone else in relationship to yourself. Because if you don't understand okay. who you are and why you do what you do and what why you believe what you believe, then how do you expect to understand that in someone else? So... Okay, so you you have to know yourself first before you can know someone else, it sounds like. You have to know yourself to an extent. Like, you don't have to completely know yourself, because completely knowing yourself is like, I, I, I'm guessing impossible. Like, that's, an, that's a hard thing to do. Very few but people... But we are ourselves. I know, but... But we are. Have you ever, like, I'm sure you've done this, like, you've done something, and you're like... Why did I do that? I have no idea why I did that, why I said that. And then yeah. and then you, you you like come across a new experience and either like you either ace it or like you're afraid of it or something and you're just like how did I react in that way? Right. Yeah. Cuz you don't know yourself. How is it possible that I cannot know myself if I live with myself all the time? Well, I live with myself Every second of every single day. How is it that I'm estranged from myself in any sense? 
I think it goes back to what we were talking about yesterday with the two parts of the brain, one that has the speech area, one that doesn't. Okay. Because, like, have you heard of the split brain experiments? It's whenever, like, let's say someone has, like, part of their brain causes seizures, but it's only in, like, one hemisphere. You can stop that by cutting the corpus callosum, which is the, it's the bundle of nerves that connect the two hemispheres. And if you cut that, I mean, they'll, they'll go on normally for the most part, but then you can do some certain experiments where you talk to only one side of the brain at a time. There's certain things that you can do so that like one half of your brain sees it and makes a choice. And then your other brain, the part of your brain that has the speech tries to explain something, like explain the reason why you did it. And oftentimes it's wrong. <laughs> Like it's it's so weird. You have to watch. You have to watch these videos. It's like it's kind of like freaky. Well, do you know how it's possible to only speak to one side of the brain? Only speak to one side of the brain? Yeah. Do you know how how that's possible? And do you have to cut the connecting link between the two sides of the brain in order to only speak to one side of the brain? Or I'm pretty sure. Can I? You think that's like you need a physical operation in order for this to happen? Well, you only get the weird effects whenever you have that operation. So I guess, I mean, I'm no psychologist, but. Okay. That's what we learned in psychology, so. Um, so where were you going with this? We were talking about being estranged from ourselves, and you mentioned the yeah. split, split brain experiment. Yeah, knowing yourself. Like in order Knowing to yourself. in order to have a relationship with someone else, you have to understand them where they come from, because if you understand them, then it's easier to predict them. Which I guess okay. is like, whenever you can predict someone, then you don't really have to worry about oh my gosh what are they gonna do, because like in a sense you've kind of figured that out already. Which I guess is kind of why certain things are like freaky. Like, have you noticed, like, in like something that's horror, it's horror because it's just acting really strange. You know, like, in like horror movies, like they move around in a weird way and like move at angles that like aren't really right. It's unpredictable. And yeah, it's like that. It's not right. That's not what I predict. Which is therefore why like you're initially afraid of it. And so you think unpredictability hinders human connection? Yeah, I, I, I think so on first thought. So the better you understand someone, the better you can predict what this, this person is going to do in certain situations, and the better you're able to predict what this person is able to do in certain situations, the more you're able to connect with them. Um, I think I think it's the better you understand someone, the more you're able to predict, and the better you understand someone, the better relationship you have. I don't think it's like a follow in a linear way, but rather it branches off into the two, you know? Oh, so you don't think it's predictability itself that creates human connection? No, no, because like, even like, because you understand that you don't fully predict someone. Like if you first meet someone and you have like an instant connection with them, you don't you can't predict them. Can you describe this this instant connection that you can have with someone? Because I think this is the this is 
essential to good friendships is having this instant connection. What is this instant connection? Uh, I don't know if it has to be like an instant connection. I was just saying in some circumstances it is. It's But a natural affinity, right? Yeah, a natural. Some, some people just have natural affinities. Yeah. I don't know why. Well, you, you said you hadn't read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis? Uh, no, but I've read a book by J. Glenn Gray called The Warriors, and he talks about love in one of his chapters. And I actually you know, taught the class on this chapter, and I've done a lot of research into uh, this this friendship love, which the Greek word for this friendship love is actually philia. Um, and if you didn't know, there's actually four words for love in Greek. The first one is eros, which is the love of sensuality or sex sexuality. Uh, then there's storge, which is uh, what Jay Glenn Gray calls love as concern, um, which is common or, or natural empathy, uh, such as you'd have between a mother and a child. The third love is philia, which is love as friendship. Uh, brotherly love. This is where we get the name of the city of Philadelphia. Uh, if you notice, the first four letters of Philadelphia are P-H-I-L, philia, um, and that's why Philadelphia is actually called the city of brotherly love. And so philia is this friendship love. And then the fourth one is agape, which is the love of God for man. Um, and this agape form of love, this was actually conceptualized or formed actually around the time of Jesus Christ or after the time of Jesus Christ, because uh, Christian theologians at that time and um, other people in the church needed a new form of love to describe the love that God has for man because they believe the other three, Eros, Storge, and Philia, they believe the other three were insufficient and they didn't serve the purpose. So those are actually the four loves. Yeah. Um, C.S. Lewis has, well, I guess they're all in English, so that makes them different a bit. Well, except arrows. So he has the four loves that he mentions are affection, friendship, arrows, and charity. And they're they're actually a bit different than how, what you described, which is interesting. Can you describe them for me? Yeah, so affection is kind of the love that like you have just by being near someone for such a long period of time. You know, he gives the example of like, it's like, oh man, it's that good old mailman that we have out there. And, you know, even though you said like the same, hi, how are you doing for like 20 years and you don't really know him like that well, you've just been around him so long. And that, he says, is part of familial ties, you know. And then you have um, Eros, which is the love and uh, like, you know, romantic love. Um, sexual love, but he said that's only like a part of it. Um, and then you have friendship, which was very interesting. Like I hadn't ever heard what he talked about. And so I kind of want to get into that later. But, and then you have um, charity, which is, which was, um, he, he talked about, you know, just 
love for someone like you don't know the stranger and like you know it's like god's god's love for us but then god's love for us is also all of those which is which is kind of strange i mean you can understand at least the the first two pretty easily you can understand affection because you know the affection love comes from god the father and then you have eros which is you know Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. Um, and then you have friendship. And, you know, we have a friend in Jesus, which is which is kind of strange because Jesus clearly says that, like, he now calls us friend. But then, but then, like, you think of friends and you think, oh, you know, they're kind of like on the same level. But, right, but God is equality. Yeah, but God's so much like better than us. Like He's God. How can like we be friends? And so I thought about that, and I think I've come to at least some points. Well, okay. So where are you with that right now? C.S. Lewis talks about how friends are always pick, depicted as being side by side, looking towards something. You know, you see them like you know they walk, like you know next to each other and are aiming at a common goal or have like a common hobby, something like that. And then right, that's a common portrait of friends. Exactly. As opposed to romantic love, you know, where it's two people looking to in each other's eyes, you know? It's okay. like they're looking out into the world. Um and that he said was okay. very, very important. So first of all you have to understand that we're made in the image of God and that even though we have fallen Christ came and did what Adam couldn't, which is be the perfect human, so that okay. the more we become like God, the more we, we know God, the better our friendship comes. You know, that's sanctification um, until in heaven we are made, like, you know, fully sanctified. You know, we, we are glorified. glorified. That's the word. Yeah. Um and then that's when our friendship, I guess, is glorified as well. So that's kind of how I, I thought about the whole on the same ground. You know, it says we're co-heirs with Christ. It's like, yes, Christ did what we can't do. But we are in, made in the image of God. We're called co-heirs with Christ. And it's because of him that we can be friends with him, which is kind of strange to think about. But right. um, and then Because we are... Okay. Yeah, and then as far as looking out into the world, sharing experiences, well, God can mourn and he can rejoice with us. I think you see that pretty clearly. Jesus, you know, he, he wept, John eleven thirty five, whenever Lazarus died. He mourned, uh, but he also, like, dined with the disciples. So we can share experiences with God. And not only that, we have something to look out toward and that is god himself well do you um do you mind if i hit on grace uh my conception of philia or friendship love yeah from what i read in jaglin gray's book yeah okay so in uh in in the warriors which is the, the title of glenn gray's book he he says and i'm quoting right now the basic difference between friends and comrades um, is 
Only the, only those men and women can be friends, I believe, who possess an intellectual and emotional affinity for each other. They must be predetermined for each other, as it were, and then must discover each other, something that rarely happens either in peace or war. The essential difference between comradeship and friendship consists in a heightened awareness of the self in friendship and in the suppression of self-awareness in comradeship. Friends do not seek to lose their identity. Friends find themselves in each other and thereby gain greater self-knowledge and self-possession. And I find what's so attractive about his conception of love is friendship or philia is this idea of intellectual and emotional affinity um, and I think that manifests itself as spontaneity in relationships and in these friendships and friendships like these that I have with other people I never have to make a conscious effort to like another person I simply find myself liking him or her um, whoever it is and it's this natural liking that I have for my friend that sparks within me a desire to spend more time around him or her. And this just feels, it feels comfortable and it feels effortless and it feels healthy all at the same time. And it causes me to ask the following question, which is, is it possible for me to cultivate an intellectual and emotional affinity for another person? Is it possible for me to actually create this affinity, or is it something that happens to us from the outside? Is it something we have no control over? And that's my question for you. What, what do you think? Hmm. I don't know if it's the whole you discover the other person. I think it's you discover what you have in common with the other person. And you, from... you think it's commonality that creates spontaneity then? No, I think the commonality is the starting block. And then spontaneity is like the part of you that you don't entirely share with them, but that you will grow to share. Okay. Um, but what I found interesting was what, what was the end of the quote that you were talking about? Can you read that again, like towards the end? Yeah, he said... The essential difference between comradeship and friendship consists in a heightened awareness of the self in friendship and a suppression of self-awareness in comradeship. Friends do not seek to lose their identity. Rather, friends find themselves in each other and thereby gain greater self-knowledge and self-possession. Yeah, find themselves in each other and gain greater self-knowledge. That That is very interesting because C.S. Lewis had talked about... Um, how friendship is enhanced by the more people that are in the friendship. Which, really, yeah, and I was like, the more he explained it, the more I, I agreed. Because it's like, if friendship is focused on something outside of the people that are there, you know, some hobby, some interest, some goal, something like that, then having someone else come in makes, oh, wow, now look, there's someone else that has this also, you know, and they're excited and they can bring in like a new perspective to it. And, you know, it's like, it's an exciting thing. It's, it's new in the, in the friendship. And I thought about that. It was interesting. 
And then he talked about how, let's say, there's like these two people, or these three people, and one of them dies. They're all friends, and one of them dies. It's not only do both of them lose just, like he, he said, A, B, and C. If C dies, then A not only loses C, but he also loses the part of B that was C. Meaning the friend, like one of the friends, loses the other friend, what the third friend was to the second friend. Okay, I see. Because, you know, you someone else can bring out a different side of them. Maybe they, they tell jokes in a certain way and then like you can't do that as well. So you, you lose part of them. So like the more people there are, the more they bring out in you. Which I thought was very interesting. I wonder if Glenn Gray would call that comradeship, actually. And I wonder if he would say that scenarios and situations and circumstances like this, what you're describing, where there's multiple people in this friendship, actually causes you to suppress a part of yourself in order to enter this group friendship. What? No, 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 no. That can't be right. Because, like, let's say you, you don't share, like, if you're if you're only friends with one other person, then only what you have in common can you fully express, like, or you're excited to express. But if there's someone else, then not only can you express the thing that you have in common with the first person and with the second person, but you can express even if just to the second person, the thing that you have in common with them. So the more people that you have in your friendship, the more people that you are likely to have different things in common with that you can fully express yourself even more. Right, but isn't friendship about individuals? Isn't friendship about individuals? Right, yeah. Uh, isn't my friendship, say with you, an individual friendship? It's unique in that my friendship with you is not the same as my friendship with, say, our sister Kate. Yeah. Right? It, isn't that a distinct part of the definition of friendship? The idea that it's an individual relationship? Mm, I don't really know. And Kate... I don't think so. Kate relates to you differently than I do, but Kate also would agree with me... Uh, I think when we talk about certain qualities that you have. Um, I don't know. I, I don't really think so. Because I think the part, like the thing that you express with one of your friends is just a part of the larger relationship. And it's just that, like whenever you're with that one person, it's just that that thing happens to be expressed more. Maybe maybe it's both. Maybe it's individual and collective friendship. But I mean, if you think about it, you're like, oh, these are my football friends. You know, like, oh, we, we hang out and we watch the football game together and we talk about that, you know. But then over here, it's like, oh, hey, no, these are my, I don't know. Band Intell friends. Intellectual friends or band friends. Oh, intellectual friends. Yeah, you know, okay. so we'll we, talk, we talk about books, you know. We talk about like okay. these philosophers and classics and stuff, and but don't don't your football friends 
doesn't that relationship that you have with all your football friends cause you to suppress that book side of yourself? And wouldn't the people in your book circle and your book group, you know, not be able to relate to you as well if you started talking about your football self? I mean, I guess in a way, but it's not that if you had with one other person, would you be able to express those things as well? I say that the more people that there are in your circle of friends, the more people that you're able to express every part of you, and there are probably some people that can relate to you in that part. Do you understand? Like, do you get what I'm saying? Yes, I understand that the more people there are in your friend group, the the greater chance that you know one of them saw the Arkansas Razorbacks play the Clemson Tigers last weekend, right? And in, in the football game. Yeah, they don't play. Oh, okay, <laughs> whoever they play. But I see what you're saying is in that the more people you have, the the greater your network reaches in terms of general interests, and the greater, therefore, the chances are that you share some interests in common with other people. But I, I still do think friendship is a uniquely individual uh, relationship. Hmm. I don't know. Like, can I can I mention this quote that C.S. Lewis that maybe can... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So he says that friendship is frowned upon by authority, which I think was kind of weird. And so he said, here's the quote, the little pockets of early Christians survived because they cared exclusively for the brethren and stopped their ears to the opinions of the pagan society all around them. But a circle of criminals, cranks, or perverts survives in the same way, by becoming deaf to the opinion of the outside world, by discounting all it as the chatter of outsiders who don't understand of the conventional, the bourgeoisie, the establishment, the prigs, the prudes, the humbugs. It is therefore easy to see why authority frowns on friendship. Every real friendship is a sort of secession, a rebellion. And then he gives he goes on to give examples of artists against ugly art or like people who have like bad fashion taste against you know common sense. Um, I I tend to agree with him on this one. That friendship has a tendency to rebel against authority, or that authority that friendship just is, naturally doesn't like friendship. Yeah, well, friendship is communal, and that it is in a sense a secession. You know, a rebellion, a tiny one, even if just from, you know, another part, which I mean, I, I, do you kind of see what he's saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sounds very different to me than how I understand friendship. Well, because as we were talking about, uh, or as I've asked you before, is it possible to have a relationship with someone in a group setting? And I think if you're forced to get to know someone in a group, you, you don't have a real relationship with that person until you've spent individual time with him or her. I think you have a relationship with them, but you don't know them fully. Like you don't know them more than okay. you could. So you can have a friendship. If it's all in one group, you can have a friendship with someone just in that group. And then never hang out, like, you know, outside of that. But I don't think you'll have 
full friendship, which I think is why the friendship that we have with Christ is so much more. It's it's a friendship, yes, as in, you know, the friendship that Jesus had with his disciples in the group setting, but it's also the one-on-one individual relationship that we have with Jesus. So in John 15, 9 through 17, I'm just going to read it. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and remain in my, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my love may be in you and that my and that your joy may be complete. My command is this: love each other as I have loved you. That goes to the whole friendship individual and communal. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command, which what he commands is for us to love him and love others, which I mean, well, yeah, no wonder we are his friends if we do that. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master's business. Instead, I call you friends for everything I learned from my father. I made known to you. You did not choose me, but I choose, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, to love each other. So what do you what do you take away from that? What I take away from that is we are friends with Jesus when we love him and love others. It's a communal it's a communal thing. Okay, let me ask you this because this is a question that I really struggle with and it's actually going to be my last question because I actually have to go pretty soon. Yeah. But how do you, how do you love someone? Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to love someone? Because when you, when you said it like that, it makes me think that love is an action. Is love not an emotion? Is it not something we feel? Is it rather an action? Or is it a combination of the two? And what do you think? What do you think the what do you think it means to love someone? Um, hmm. I, I can I can I give you what I what I think it means? Yeah. Here's I've thought about this for a little bit, and I've I've come to this conclusion so far. I think. To love someone essentially means to see that person. To see? Is to, to see with your eyes and you know, metaphorically with your heart as well. Is to see that person and, and to look at that person. And I don't think it just means putting that person first. Because when you say that you put that per- person first, you still imply that there's someone second. And so not all the resources can be dedicated to that first person. But I think if you see someone, and if you're looking at someone, then, then all your attention is, is focused on that person. And it's kind of like the question I asked you, um, how do you forget something? And, and the answer you gave me is to look to something else. You can't will yourself to forget something, and that's what hinders love for us is ourselves and our pride. And we, I don't think we can will ourselves to just 
get rid of our pride and get get rid of our uh, whatever else would would hinder a relationship. Though I think the biggest thing is pride. I don't think we can try, 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 and will that pride would leave our lives. I think in order to love someone and therefore in order to get pride to actually leave and therefore also in order to be truly humble, you have to look to something else. And so that's why I say to, to love someone means to see that person. And, and when you see that person, guess what? You're not seeing yourself anymore. Mm. And, and for the first time, you can love this person. And so that's what I would like to pose as what I think it means to love someone else. Interesting. Well, the first thing I think of is First John 4, 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that, might, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That, that fits what, what you said with looking not toward ourselves at all, like forgetting ourselves. Kind of. Right, and the thing is you don't forget in a vacuum because your eyes will still be working and you will still be looking somewhere. Your eyes are always seeing, and it's a matter of direction. It's not a matter of closing them. It's a matter of where you're looking. And you can't just close your eyes to yourselves in the absence of looking to something else. No, you actually have to look to something else as well. As well. Yeah, because if you forget yourself, without looking to anything else. That's like the parable of that Jesus talked about of the demon of a man, you know, there's like a house and there's a demon in the house and he drives it out and then goes away. And then, you know, seven demons come along or like, I don't remember how many. And they're like, Oh wow, this empty house. And they all go in. Right. So, it's even because he didn't fill it with anything, right? Exactly. Is that what you would say? Yeah. Because he didn't fill it with that which it should be full with. What? He didn't fill it with what it needed to be full with, right? Yeah, you, you didn't. It's just... It was just vacant. It's vacant, which then brings a whole host of problems. Let's say if right. you forget yourself, but you don't love other people, well then, maybe you become nihilistic. And if you become nihilistic, maybe you become resentful of other people and of yourself. And that can lead to a I whole really bunch of, of demons, you know, a deep, just dark spiral of, you know, hating everything, hating other people, hating God, hating yourself. It's all these demons that are just plaguing you. And that's what that's like. If you're not filled with the love of Christ... Which naturally looks outside of yourselves. Exactly. And yeah, I, I really like that. I, I find that really interesting. Yeah. There's one more thing that I wanted to, one quote that I wanted to mention okay. before we before we go, and that's Aristotle says that friendship is a single soul dwelling in two bodies, and I cannot think of a more perfect example of that than the Holy Spirit, which is 
God's spirit, which dwells in, in two separate but people, both us, our Christian brethren, and in Jesus. And would you say that's how, in a sense, he brings us into his fold? Because that's what I think of when I say the Holy Spirit, the same thing, dwelling in two separate pe people, is God bringing us into that love which he already has within himself being trinitarian. Yeah. I think it's that is what you are your house is filled with that keeps those other demons away. Let's say you forget yourself okay. but but God fills you with the Holy Spirit. You know. Okay. And yeah, there's yeah. nothing better. Well, well I um actually have to get going but I I think this was a a good conversation. Yeah. I kind of flew by. Yeah, it did. It didn't feel as long as the last one. I think we articulated a little no. better. <laughs> yeah, I I was focusing on presenting my thoughts in a clearer fashion. Yeah. Though I still have a lot of work to do. But yeah, we'll get better. Cool. All right. Yeah. I'll see you, John. Okay. Bye, Will. Bye.